according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5, we've covered really the first five verses, almost, and... uh, well, okay, no, we haven't. We've covered the first three verses, and uh, we'll deal with verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6 as we inf- reinforce some humility lessons, some things that, that uh, the author of Hebrews takes us into here as it applies to our Savior. No one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron does, was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, you are uh, a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so these are the verses we're going to look at as the author of Hebrews takes and he blends Psalm 2 with Psalm 110, how he puts together theologically some very important principles that come to us in our prophetic studies for Jesus Christ as the king priest of, uh, of the coming millennial kingdom. All right, before we do that, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father to set aside our distractions, to humble us, and to bless us with the truth of His Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. In the blessing that we have this morning, Father, this is a grace provision. We don't earn this. We don't deserve this. Who are we? Father, that we should be brought into your counsel, that you should explain yourself to us, and yet you do. Father, you open the eyes of our understanding, you open the ears of our hearing, you implant your word within our heart, and we thank you for that, Father. And so by your grace, we're here in the name of Jesus Christ, and we're here to receive instruction. We stand before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that's not because of what we've done, not not because of what we've earned or deserved, because your son has taken our penalty upon himself. He accepted our sin in our place. He gave us now his righteousness. So we stand before you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we call upon your faithfulness, Father, to to feed us this day. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so I think we've covered everything we're going to deal with on this slide, looking at verse 3 as it pertains to um, earthly priests who are first obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And of course, uh, the Levitical priests had to do this. Uh, We need to be on guard for ourselves as well. Jesus, though, did not need to offer a sin sacrifice for himself. He was sinless. He was perfect. And so he was able to go and accomplish what he accomplished on the cross and uh, be able to do the finished work, the first, the, the uh, once and for all sacrifice that removes the sin of the world, that doesn't just cover the sin, but removes the sin of the world and uh, the significant applications there. As we move on to verse 4, we have this principle, no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. You might recall that Aaron was not God's first choice. 
that God was first of all calling Moses, and Moses was complaining, and Moses was uh, grumbling about not being worthy or not being able. And finally, at uh, Moses' insistence then, God says, all right, sets him aside and calls Aaron to be the high priest. We might have ended up with a Mosaic priesthood instead of an Aaronic priesthood when it comes right down to it, but this is what we have, and this is what God provides, and His purpose is not thwarted. God will work through humble believers. God will work through obedient believers. God will not work through rebels, and God will not coerce your volition. And uh, and so we have an interesting thing when it comes to uh, what Aaron, how Aaron found himself in this position as high priest. But it's also the case of Jesus, that Jesus did not glorify himself. Jesus did not storm to the Father's throne and shake his fist and demand privileges. That was what Satan did. Satan actually, when you read it in Isaiah 14, Satan shook his fist at God and demanded five things that he felt that he was entitled to. That uh, five things he did not yet have, but he felt he should have. And it didn't like where his throne was placed. It didn't like his position on the angelic earth. He thought he should have a heavenly position. That he should be above the angels. He should be above the clouds. He didn't like being lower than the angels on the angelic earth. See, And so that was a problem that Satan rebelled against. And fundamentally, it becomes the aspect, the, the, the core issue of the angelic conflict with respect to humility and with respect to exaltation. And this is what we see in these principles here, that God is opposed to the proud. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, He will exalt you at the proper time. And so if God is opposed to the proud, that starts with Satan. If God is opposed to the proud, that starts with all the seed of Satan, that starts with uh, all the, the pride rebellion that underlies every sin, all right? But mostly it targets believers because we're the ones who should know better. We're the ones that should be transformed by the Word of God. We're the ones that should be humbled by being the objects of God's saving grace and walking the Christian way of life in the church age. And so we've got some passages here, Proverbs 3.34 which uh, underlies the New Testament quotations, Proverbs 3. And, and when you're talking in Proverbs 1 through 9, you're talking about the early chapters, the parental wisdom of Proverbs. Th- these are the, the, the principles of wisdom that Solomon received from David and Bathsheba. These are the parental wisdom parameters that Solomon then recorded in his book of Proverbs. And, and, um, what any parents can can use with their children to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Just take the first nine chapters of Proverbs and teach them over and over and over again, in, uh, until uh, until our kids get them ground through their thick skulls. <laughs> All right, and so uh, Proverbs three uh, starts off: "My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments." And this is something to be reminded of again and again and again, that you don't forget, you don't lose track of. And when you leave your parents' house and you set forth in your own generation, you're still accountable before the Lord to not forget how your parents raised you in in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And uh, verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. And another principle that, you know, your parents give it to you when you're young, but you keep living it every day of your life in your own generation, in your own, in your own standing before God. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make your path straight. Applicable, uh, you know, I say again, parents are grounding that into children, but adults have to live this out. Vital that we live this way. Do not be wise in your own eyes for the fear of the Lord and turn away from evil. 
That's verse 7 here of, of Proverbs chapter 3. So all of this leads up to verse 34. But this is what we have in Proverbs. These early verses are giving us fundamental principles of wisdom. And they're fundamental principles, what we might call the elementary principles, the basics. And they're applicable in the Old Testament for Israel's stewardship. They're applicable in the New Testament for the church age stewardship. They're going to be applicable in the tribulation. They're going to be applicable in the millennium. They're going to be applicable in the new heavens and new earth. (coughs) They are universally applicable. (coughs) All right. Get down to verse... uh, to the end of the chapter. Um, And we pick it up, uh, verse 32. The devious are an abomination to the Lord, but He is intimate with the upright. The blessing we have to walk with Him and that intimacy of walking with the Lord. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but He blesses the dwelling of the righteous. And so we operate together as a family. We want to have a Christian home. We want to have a home that lives the Word of God, that, that, uh, that is a, a blessing to the next generation. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. And here the Hebrew idiom is so powerful, and it doesn't always convey, and it doesn't even come across in the, in the Greek quotation. It doesn't even come across in the New Testament. When James and when Peter say that he is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The idea of being opposed is better expressed here. He scoffs at the scoffers. Not only is opposed to them, but he himself deals with them in in a way proportional to their own rebellion, proportional to their own pride. And so they're scoffers because they're arrogant. And he's going to scoff at the scoffers. See, and this is what God does when he administers his divine discipline. I think uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum calls it like for like in kind is how he, he phrases that, that he, God applies the discipline in a manner that corresponds to the rebellion. And so in the case of the scoffers here, he's scoffing at them. And uh, anyway, it comes across in the New Testament as, as a simple opposition. God is opposed opposed to the proud and and i don't know maybe it's just me my my view on the the word opposed is is lame (laughs) i just think you know you have something well i'm opposed to that you know it just seems like it's a a personal preference as opposed to uh, uh in contrast to scoffing at scoffers yet he gives grace to the afflicted and that's uh, what a what a privilege. And this is what we're we're the objects of that grace. We receive that grace, and we want to be able to extend that grace one to another in the uh, in the Christian way of life. The wise will inherit honor, but fools display dishonor. And so Proverbs three concludes with that as its contrast. Now this uh, impact hit uh, James and Peter both, and they included it in their New Testament books. James 4, 6, and 1 Peter 5, 5. And it's interesting in the context for which both of these uh, authors chose to bring this principle forward. It is curious because it does speak to the battle that we fight in this fallen world. The fact that you and I name the name of Jesus Christ and we are the, we are the, 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 the ducks out of water, right? We're the strange fish. We're, we don't fit anymore. We, we're now aliens and strangers in a world that used to be our home, but isn't our home anymore. And now, uh, they look at us like we're, 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 we're weirdos. Okay. <laughs> we're, uh, we're kooks. We don't, we don't think the way they think. We don't act the way they act. We don't do with the things they do. And, uh, and they don't like that. See. And so in James 4, we have, uh, we have this here. Verse 4 says, You adulteresses, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? And this was this because right out of the Old Testament, Israel was constantly playing the harlot. And they were going after the, the nations around them and, and worshiping their gods. And in worshiping their gods, Yahweh said, look, you're supposed to be worshiping me. I'm your God. And, and so when, when they fell into idolatry, Yahweh said, that's adultery, spiritual adultery, because you're not faithful to the Lord your God. Now in the New Testament, of course, we don't have a a God of America that we uh, contrast with Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. Uh, but in a sense we do, in the sense that cosmos friendship is the idolatry of our, of our stewardship, is the idolatry of our day. And here it is, friendship with the cosmos is hostility towards God. So whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. And this is uh, what it comes down to. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose. Do you think He wrote the Bible for no reason? Do you think God gave us principles to live by without a reason for why He gave it? He gave it to us so we would live it. He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. He wants us to be faithful to the Word of God. He wants us to be walking by means of the Spirit, not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. He wants us to be walking the living sacrifice that he made possible when he went to the cross. And he gives a greater grace. He gives a greater grace. Now what could be greater? (laughs) I think the grace that saved me was pretty amazing, isn't it? And yet he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this is not in a context of an unbeliever getting saved. This is in the context of of a believer who is walking humbly with his God so that he can have victory day by day in this angelic conflict. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's what carnality is. Carnality puts that barrier between you and God again. And if you think there's a distance there, if you're not as close as you used to be, well, who moved? You or God? Okay? Let me tell you, he didn't move. You moved. That distance, that separation and fellowship and intimacy, and that, that, was, that was all you walking off into, into darkness, walking off into carnality. And when you're ready to come back, he's, he's still there. And so uh, draw near. Uh, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And what a blessing we have in order to confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can do that. 1 John 1, 9 is never expires. <laughs> it's always available. You never get a busy signal. All right. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. He will exalt you. Now when's that going to happen? Say, I'm, I'm saying, okay, Lord, I'm ready for some exaltation now. I said, no, you're not. <laughs> and here's why. Because the exaltation he's designed us for is resurrection, millennial, eternal exaltation. And we, we, all we have is a taste of that. We have a foretaste of that. We don't get that until we're face to face with Jesus Christ, till he comes back in power and great glory. If we want kingdom now, we've got bad theology. Okay? Because he is seated at the Father's right hand waiting until his father makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. The footstool hasn't been fashioned yet, and uh, we're still waiting for that. And so this is James's context here for this. And uh, to me, it's extraordinary, particularly since James 
was the oldest of, of our Savior's siblings, not even a believer until after the resurrection, and yet uh, becomes one of the uh, giants of the early church. And now from there we go to 1 Peter 5.5. 5. And again, we have humility as the order of the day, 1 Peter 5.5. 5. And this really serves as a, as a conclusion to uh, a powerful exhortation in 1 through 5, where Peter here is called a fellow elder and is exhorting the elders to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. And we have all three terms right there, from elder to overseer to shepherd. And all three expressions are right there for the, uh, the threefold ministry of the pastor-teacher in a local church. Elders, overseers, pastor-teachers, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. Nothing we do can be under compulsion, can be a have to. God loves the cheerful giver, not grudgingly or under compulsion. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. If the pastor is doing it for the money, then he's not a pastor, he's a hireling, he's not a shepherd. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And this is what we have. Jesus didn't come to earth to lord it. Jesus came to earth to demonstrate, to show the example of humility. Pastors are not here to lord it. Pastors are here to set the example of humility. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Well, I don't want to wait that long. <laughs> what do you mean when the chief shepherd appears? You know, we say here, there, in the air, when the trumpet sounds, we're going to be caught up to be with the Lord in glory. And I am promised nothing prior to that. Not in terms of glory and eternal reward and all of that. I'm promised His faithfulness. I'm promised He will never leave me nor forsake me. But as far as rewards and crowns and glories and exaltation, He will exalt you at the proper time. And now is not it. Okay? And this is part of what Satan twists is what prosperity theology twists you're supposed to have kingdom life now you're supposed to have prosperity now and these lies come at you as if now is the time of exaltation no no now is the time of humiliation jesus had to go to the cross before he could receive the crown we have to go through our life this is what's preparing us for the next and so this becomes important too so you younger men likewise be subject to your elders this humility prepares you. You're going to be an elder someday, but for right now, you're a younger man. So be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And we read from Romans 12 last hour and how that mutual reciprocal devotion works and how we serve one another as we let love be without hypocrisy. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. When you fail to humble yourself, if you want to follow after Satan in his course of self-exaltation, man, the hand of God's discipline will come upon you. That's, that's what uh, we're not called to that and he will, uh, he will correct that immediately. Casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you, be of sober spirit, 
Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion. Why is it that every one of these passages talking about humility versus arrogance reminds the, the reader about Satan and what Satan's doing? Because that's the essence of the whole angelic conflict. Are we going to follow Satan and be self-exaltative? Are we going to follow Jesus and humble ourselves? Okay? And this is key. And, and I want to get this across today, and I don't care you know, how long it takes. Okay? We've got to get this across. The issue is humility, to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, to, uh, to clothe yourself with humility, to be subject to your elders, to be subject in the fear of the Lord, like uh, I wrote about in the newsletter related to our reverence before God, our classroom discipline as we come together, as we worship, as we study. These are matters for humility. These are matters for our application. And if we fail, we're lining ourselves up for judgment, lining ourselves up for God's discipline. And uh, it is. It's raging. That's uh, no question on that. So God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And He exalts the humble forever. And so we've already read this. He gives grace to the humble and He exalts the humble forever. He may exalt you at the proper time. All right? And that proper time is when we're seated on white horses and when we're descending with our Lord. Okay? Slightly prior to that, when we stand at the Bema and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, when we have all the wood, hay, and stubble burned away, when we have our crowns assigned, when we have our robes assigned, then we get to return with our Lord. Looking forward to that. But prior to that, what am I promised? What am I promised prior to that? Grace uh, multiplied and God being faithful. <laughs> okay? Grace is multiplied and God stays faithful. So he gives grace to the humble and he exalts the humble forever. Now, if, if, if you can't deal with that, if you think that that's not what the Bible's talking about and you want to go the, the satanic route, I just warn you, search the scriptures, see if these things are so. Go to Isaiah 14 and see the five I wills. Go to, uh, go to Matthew 4 when Satan is tempting Jesus and says, hey, shows them the kingdoms of the world and all their glory and says, I'll give these to you. Just bow down and worship me. He's promising Jesus a shortcut to glory, a way to get it and have it now and not have to wait for it and not have to suffer. You can have it now. And that's, I tell you, that's the same lie he's telling to this day. You can have it now. And you don't have to suffer. And you shouldn't suffer. That's wrong. You don't deserve to suffer. If God loves you, he wouldn't put you on that cross. Remember when they're mocking him on the, on the cross? Come down from there. Come down from there. If God loved you, he would deliver you. So God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Remember, humility precedes exaltation every time. Every time. And uh, not only have we seen it again and again throughout Hebrews, it's been a part of our Philippians study. It's really a blessing that this flock is receiving Philippians and Hebrews concurrently. I think it's a great tandem. Remember Hebrews 2.9, we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And then it says, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. And I emphasized it, I stressed it then, I'm stressing it now, it's causative. Because of the suffering of death. If he would have rejected that, he would not have been worthy of the exaltation and glory the Father bestowed upon him. 
because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Humility precedes exaltation. And here's Jesus, the ultimate, eternal, infinite, humble one. Therefore, he's worthy of what? The ultimate, eternal, infinite glory. No one will ever have a greater glory than Jesus Christ because no one exhibited a greater humility than Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, the kenosis chapter, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. If some of you here don't attend the 9.30 hour, this is uh, what we've been dealing with Sunday morning and then again Wednesday night in the book of Philippians. And so we're told um, in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Realize that? That was the fifth and final of Satan's five I wills. I will be like the Most High God. (laughs) And here's the Son of God, who was in the beginning with God, the Word was God, and he let that go. He said, that's not a thing to grasp. That's not a thing to to, uh, earn or deserve or to hold on to. And he emptied himself. He set aside every privilege of deity in order to walk the, the walk that you and I walk. So he emptied himself, kenosis, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now deity can't stop being deity, of course. It's immutable and doesn't stop. But he stopped exercising the prerogatives. He stopped employing the attributes. Never once did he access omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence. Never once did he exercise sovereignty or justice or eternal life. He, he laid aside every element of his deity, never using any of it. He walked the human walk to identify with us. And then it says, what does it say? For this reason also. It's causative. It's like the because we just saw in Hebrews. Because, for this reason also, God highly exalted him. Without humility, there is no exaltation. Had Jesus Christ not humbled himself to the point of death, God the Father would not have exalted him. It's the reason why the Lamb is worthy to take the book, the scroll out of the hand of God the Father and break its seals. Because he humbled himself. He stood there as the Lamb having been slain worthy to break those seals. So for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You know, even the fallen angels, even the unbelievers are going to be brought up from under the earth. Death and Hades are going to be emptied out so that every unbeliever stands before the great white throne judgment. And every knee will bend and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord as they get cast into the lake of fire. It's a powerful verse. Jesus Christ is Lord, notice, to the glory of God the Father. And the Father is pleased to exalt the Son. The Son is pleased to exalt the Father. All right, so that's, uh, that's our application there in Hebrews 5.4. 
uh, the high priest don't take the honor to themselves. Jesus did not take the honor to himself. We don't stand before God and demand things. We don't act like we've earned or deserved anything. I don't, I'm not entitled to be a believer. I'm not entitled to be a pastor teacher. I'm not entitled to have the, the, the privilege of shepherding the flock that is Austin Bible Church. None of that is earned or deserved. Everything is grace. And if God places whatever ministry God places you in, thank Him for it and be faithful. Be faithful. So also Christ, Hebrews 5, 5 and 6 now. So also Christ did not glorify Himself so as to become a high priest. But He who said to Him, You are My Son, today I have begotten you. Just as He says also in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so here's the Father bestowing decrees upon the Son. And uh, Psalm 2 is a decree. Psalm 110 is a decree. And the Father is bestowing multiple decrees. And the author of Hebrews is doing us a marvelous favor here by showing us how to rightly divide the word of truth. How to appropriately compare Scripture with Scripture how to see the entire counsel of the Word of God, the whole counsel of the Word of God, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. And we have uh, a neat neat synthesis here. Psalm 2-7 is linked to Psalm 110-4 in a synthesis which harmonizes with Zechariah 6-13. The idea that he can be both a king and a priest at the same time was contradictory in the Old Testament and yet promised in Zechariah 6.13. And so by combining these separate decrees and showing how they do come together, they only come together in one person. They only come together in the beloved Son. No one else would be so qualified. No one else could unite these offices. Psalm 2.7 is linked to Psalm 110.4. In a synthesis which harmonizes with Zechariah 6.13. And now you understand why churches like us are pretty small. (laughs) It takes work. It takes homework. It takes diligence. Comparing Scripture to Scripture, digging it up, and uh, understanding the whole counsel. Not just simply fluffing people up with a light and fluffy kind of a uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. You ever heard of that? MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism. That's what the bulk of uh, Christendom is today. Let's look at Psalm 2-7. Moralistic, just be a good person. Therapeutic, makes me feel good. Deism, yeah, there's a God somewhere he uh i basically want him to leave me alone uh from what i want to do but occasionally if i'm in a bind i I want him to bail me out and then when i'm out of that bind i want him to just go away again and basically leave me alone because i'm i'm happy living my life the way i'm living my life and i'm basically a good person my church tells me i'm basically a good person i feel good about myself my church makes me feel good about myself and that's moralistic therapeutic deism mtd and it's uh, it's sad. All right. 
Psalm 2, 7. Let's compare Scripture to Scripture. And you'll note the whole context of Psalm 2 is the millennium. The context for Psalm 2 is a coming day when all the Gentile nations get together and they're upset. Okay? Nowadays, if all the Gentile nations get together, they're upset, but they're usually upset of Donald Trump or the Jews or Israel or something. But a day is coming when all the nations will be enraged against God the Father and Jesus Christ on David's throne in Jerusalem. And so this is the context for Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His Christ, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And so the father validates the son and is laughing at this rebellion when the Gentiles hate being ruled by the the Jewish throne in, in Jerusalem. That introduces verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. The millennial kingdom is going to be a tough reign It's going to be a reign of power. It's going to be a reign of iron. Jesus is going to rule over with a rod of iron. And these complaining, grumbling, rebellious Gentiles are going to receive the the blunt end of his rod of iron. They will be broken and they will be shattered as Jesus Christ reigns for a thousand years in Jerusalem. And so here we see a reign. Here we see the king's son, similar to what we've been looking at in the first four chapters of, uh, of Hebrews. And then we have... Psalm 110, which takes us to the priest son. Takes us to the priest son. So Psalm 110. And it is interesting to note, in case you miss it, that a Psalm 110.4 follows Psalm 110.1, whereby we have the kingship reviewed. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so that's agreement with Psalm 2. There's kingship, but he's waiting. He's presently in heaven waiting to go forth. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. And so there it is again. The strong scepter is the rod of iron. And when he rules, he's going to rule. And he's going to rule not in the midst of his friends, He's going to rule in the midst of his enemies. The millennial kingdom will be a time of hostility against him. But your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. For the first time ever, the Jewish nation is going to be the faithful nation. (laughs) Can you imagine? All right. If we didn't, I mean, man, we have Israel's history in the Old Testament. And we think, are you kidding me? Israel is going to be faithful? With Christ their king on the throne, yes. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. But then verse 4, Psalm 110, 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. 
you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so here we have it. This Melchizedek priesthood, this promise. And we have the reigning king. God the Son is going to be king, but he's also going to be priest. He will be the king priest on David's throne in Jerusalem. He will be king priest. And that's not possible in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it's not possible. Under a Levitical priesthood, it's not possible. Because the scepter belongs to Judah and the priesthood belongs to Levi. Totally separate tribes. All right? But in Christ, they are united. The Melchizedek priesthood is united with his throne, with his position. We even now today operate in that priesthood today while we're waiting to see that throne come to earth. All of these things we have coming up. Hebrews 5 through 10 is all about our Melchizedek priesthood and how you and I enter within the veil, how you and I operate as believer priests in this dispensation. And that's, that's a thrill. What a thrill. And, and, and who needs that misguided throne approach? Okay? We'll get there eventually. For now, though, let's function in our priesthood so we can be prepared when our Savior returns. And so um, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. How about that? <laughs> now, first of all, is He not the God who cannot lie? We saw that last hour. So if you're a God who cannot lie, how do you swear? How do you take an oath? Isn't that powerful? I love it. It's beautiful. You know, we, we're humans. We can lie. And yet we swear an oath. Put our hand on a Bible. We raise our right hand. We swear, uh, you know, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Because we're finite, because we're liars, because we're sinners. If we want to confirm the truthfulness of what we're vowing, we call God as a witness. We invite Him to judge us. We're inviting the God of truth to judge us if we disparage His name with perjury. Okay? But God cannot lie. So He swears by Himself. Right? Because we swear to God, what does God swear to? Okay? He swears to Himself. By Himself. By His own name. And he's not going to change his mind. You are a priest forever. Every ironic priest uh, only lasted, it was a lifetime deal because they kept dying. <laughs> okay? And so Aaron was not a priest forever. Eliezer was not a priest forever. Whoever Eliezer's son was not a priest forever. They kept dying, replaced by their son, replaced by their son. Jesus Christ holds his priesthood forever. Hence, he is able to save to the uttermost those that draw near through him. Now, it's curious because, of course, Zechariah 6.13 prophesies. We saw this a couple of lessons ago. Zechariah 6. Whoever reads Zechariah, anyway. Zechariah 6. It's one of the minor prophets. And so Zechariah is told, take silver and gold and make an ornate crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. When they came back from Babylonian captivity, there was Zerubbabel as the governor, there was uh, Joshua as the high priest. And putting a crown on Joshua, that doesn't make any sense. He's a priest, he's not a king. Why am I putting a crown on his head? Because he's a demonstration, he's a visual aid of a king priest, just for this prophecy. 
And so say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. Okay, but not till he's branch. When he's still shoot and root, or I'm sorry, root and shoot, he's coming in first advent and humility, and he's going to go to the cross and all that. It's not until he's a branch that he comes back in second advent and rebuilds the temple. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. The two offices. And so it's a prophecy in Zechariah 6 that the coming Messiah would be not only a king, but he would be a king-priest. The coming kingdom will feature a rebuilt temple and will feature the, the Messiah as the king priest. And so this is what the author of Hebrews is doing here in Hebrews 5, 5 and 6. He's showing the synthesis of Psalm 2-7 with Psalm 110-4. And it's a glorious thing to look at. Now Psalm 2-7 was previously cited in Hebrews 1-5. And now we're getting it a second time in Hebrews 5-5. These are the only two times that uh, Psalm 2-7 is mentioned. You might recall in chapter 1 that we had this. The fact that when he had made purification of sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Remember that? That, that was kind of the introduction to, to Hebrews, was it not? I mean, that's the first verse after the prologue of 1 through 4. And so quoting Psalm 2-7 was, was huge in starting us off in this whole blessing that has been the book of Hebrews. And so, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It comes up in 1-5, it returns in 5-5, and that's it. It's the only two times that we have the begotten son mentioned in the book of Hebrews. However, Psalm 110 in verse 4 where you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, that's actually mentioned six times in the book of Hebrews. So the sonship gets two references. In other words, Psalm 2-7 is quoted twice. Psalm 110-4 is quoted six times. It is featured six times in the coming chapters. And that's because the emphasis, the emphasis, the emphasis, okay, is on the priesthood. The book of Hebrews, to the Hebrews, is, is the priesthood of the believers in Christ. It is our royal high priesthood that we have in Christ. And so everything that we enjoy now, everything we enjoy in the church age, everything that tribulational saints can look forward to in the tribulation, but we live it out now, see, that's why we have a book of Hebrews. This is effectively, this is our Leviticus. Isn't that great? We don't have to butcher goats or anything. And we don't have to, you know, pour out entrails or any of that other bloody, messy stuff. We have the living sacrifice in Christ, the Melchizedek priesthood in Christ. Not Levitical, Melchizedek. Okay? And you're going to hear a lot about Melchizedek in the coming weeks, coming months. Okay? Melchizedek takes center stage here in the book of uh, in the book of Hebrews. 
You want to know where else Melchizedek is mentioned in the Bible? Hardly ever. One time in one chapter, Genesis 14, the name appears once in Genesis 14, and you never see him again. And he's never mentioned again, except in a prophecy of Psalm 110, verse 4. (laughs) When out of nowhere, the Lord swears that you are a priest according to the order of some obscure guy from Genesis 14. Okay? And there is a tremendous, tremendous depth to that. In fact, it gave the rabbis tremendous fits in, in all their debates in the Mishnah and the, in the Talmud and all the debates about why does Psalm 110 appoint Messiah as a priest, as a Melchizedek priest. So we've got a lot to do coming up. In fact, the author of Hebrews would love to develop more than he can develop Glance down, if you would, to uh, verse 11. Because verse 10 mentions uh, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, concerning whom we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. If you're going to study Melchizedek as a church-age believer priest, you better be in fellowship, you better be humble under the Word of God, you better be ready for the deep things of God. And let the Spirit of God take you to even the deep things of God. Melchizedek is, is not for, uh, for babies. And that's what it says here. It's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. Melchizedek is meat. And all these guys are ready for is milk. You've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is is a babe. But solid food is for the mature. You know, if you've got a brand new nursing infant, you know, they need the they need the breast milk. They need the milk. And uh, the 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 porterhouse steak is uh, that's for us. That's for adults. That's for you know, and you don't stick a steak in the baby's mouth, okay? And if you're 30 years old and you're still breastfeeding, that's not good. You, you should be older than that by now. And that's the whole point. So stay tuned. Melchizedek is deep stuff, but it's powerful. And it's what the, the author of Hebrews is giving to his priestly audience here so that they don't regret leaving their Levitical priesthood behind. See, they were on the verge of abandoning that and going back to, going back to Jerusalem, going back to their Levitical uh, roots. And he says, do you know what you're throwing away? And he doesn't even warn them that, you know, Titus is going to destroy Jerusalem and you're all going to die. That's almost a non-issue. He says, you're throwing away the Melchizedek priesthood to try to go back to something Levitical. That was shadows. We're substance. That's the whole point here, the thrust of, of Hebrews 5 through 10. Better things concerning you. So, Psalm 110, 4 is featured six times in the coming chapters. It starts here in verse 6, and it gets mentioned again in verse 10, being designated by God as a priest, high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. And remember, 
We don't know any of the details about Melchizedek other than what we read in chapter 14 of, of Genesis. And the author of Hebrews is going to take us through that. Chapter 6 and verse 20. We saw verse 19 this morning. We have an anchor. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. We should have stability in the Word of God. Unstable believers need to be grounded in doctrine. Sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7 and verse 3. You see this Melchizedek, king of Salem, that's king of peace, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of the spoils. He was first of all, by translation of his name, he was king of righteousness. Melchizedek, Melech is king, Zedek is righteousness. And then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. The town Jerusalem called Salem, king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy. He just pops up in Genesis 14. We have no record of who his parents were, no record of when he was born, no record of when he died, no details of any kind. Just splashes on the page in Genesis 14 and does what he does and disappears. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. So we have references there we got to deal with. Verse 17. It is attested of him, you are a priest forever. Notice, let me back up. <laughs> verse 12 says, let's see, oh goodness. Verse 11. If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? I mean, if Levi could get it done, we don't need this, right? But since we have this new Melchizedek priesthood, it's clear that perfection was not going to come through the Levitical priesthood. And so when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. We've got a new manner of life in the, in the church age, greater than anything Israel ever had. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one is officiated at the altar. Jesus is from Judah. There's nothing in the Bible about Judah being a priest. It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek. And so this becomes powerful. This, this grabs our attention. We say, well, wait a minute. This is different. This is new. It actually precedes Aaron. Levi was in the loins of Abraham when Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. The Melchizedek priesthood is greater. The greater is served by the lesser. The greater blesses the lesser. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And so uh, this becomes important. And it says, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement. Do you see verse 16 there? Hebrews seven sixteen but according to the power of an indestructible life. I love that. When you understand this doctrine, you can never be a racist. You can understand that 
Our priesthood is not based upon who our parents are or who their parents are, what tribe we belong to. You couldn't be a Levitical high priest unless your father was the Levitical high priest. That requirement was physical birth. Not so with us. We have the power of an indestructible life because guess what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. That's eternal life. That's an indestructible life. And so he holds his priesthood perpetually. How about us? Yeah, we do. Because he's the apostle and high priest of our confession. We share this same priesthood. The eternal Melchizedek priest in Christ. And not on physical requirements. I don't care if you're white, black, whatever. Male, female. There's no Jew nor Gentile. Male nor female. Bond or free. We're all one body in Christ. And so we have that. The power of an indestructible life. And uh, with not without an oath. Verse 20 and 21. They indeed became priests without an oath. But he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. All right, so this is the impact of this. The priesthood is featured six times in the coming chapters. And uh, stay tuned for, for all of that. Now something um, we have to recognize, and we're going to run out of time here. All things promised by God must be fulfilled even when they don't seem to, even when they don't make sense, even when they appear to contradict. If I got king promises and priest promises and then my mind says, well, they can't be the same, God finds a way to make them both true because everything must be fulfilled. Everything God has spoken must be fulfilled. And so we're going to go through these passages next week. It centers on John 12. It centers in Luke 24. It centers in promises Jesus makes. It centers in, in legitimate questions we have to ask. So God sends a prophet and he tells King Zedekiah, you're going to die in Babylon. And then God sends another prophet and he tells King Zedekiah, you're never going to see Babylon. And they appear to be contradictory messages. But they're both true. Because Nebuchadnezzar gouges out his eyes and he's blinded and he goes to Babylon, never sees it. He goes to Babylon and he dies in Babylon. They seem like they're contradictory promises, but God makes them both true. Okay? We have other contradictory promises like Galilee of the Gentiles or Bethlehem or out of Egypt I will call my son. We've got all of these geographical promises for the coming of the Christ. And they seem to contradict because Bethlehem is not in Galilee and neither one of them is in Egypt. But they're all true. And the Father fulfills every promise He ever makes even when we don't think He will. Even if it doesn't make sense at first until we see the fulfillment and then we go, oh. Okay? In John 12, the Jews are asking Jesus, we, we, we have heard that when Messiah comes, he's going to live forever. Probably because of all those prophecies that said, your kingdom will be without end, <laughs> okay? And you were a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And forever is forever. But Jesus was talking about dying, being lifted up. And so they're scratching their heads saying, what are you talking about dying for? 
We have heard that when Messiah comes, he's going to live forever. And Jesus says, it's true. All things are true. Okay? They may appear to be contradictory, but everyone is true. And when we learn how to rightly divide the word of truth, when we learn how to compare Scripture with Scripture and synthesize everything, the whole counsel, from Genesis to Revelation, then we have the very hermeneutical tool that Jesus gave us in Luke chapter 24. And so if I have to spend a whole hour on just that one point, on that one-third of one slide, we will be very blessed next week as we work our way through that. Okay, But I'm out of time today. It's Communion Sunday. So we want to uh, approach the, uh, the Lord's table. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this message. I thank you for this truth. I thank you for the humility of our Savior, that he did humble himself to the point of death. And for this reason, he is exalted. And you have bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. And Father, I thank you that we share that name, that as the bride of Christ, Father, we, we receive his name. And it is, uh, it is a thrill. It is a joy. Father, uh, just thank you for our position in Christ. Thank you for giving us uh, the doctrine to appreciate it and giving us the ritual whereby we can celebrate it, we can commemorate it, we can worship one with another as we share what we have in common. Thank you for the bread and for the cup. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.